today. 1 Samuel in chapter 15. Before we read our text, I, I want to read you this quote. It's not going to be on the screen because I just wrote it down on a note card before I came in here today. So listen closely. J.C. Ryle said this. Beware of manufacturing a God of your own. A God who is all mercy, but not just. A God who is all love, but not holy. A God who has a heaven for everybody, but a hell for none. Such a God is an idol of your own, and he is not the God of the Bible. That's not a real positive quote. I love songs like we just heard about the mercy, the goodness, and the grace of God. If it weren't for that, we wouldn't be here today. I love to preach on the mercy and the grace and love of God. For God is all of those things, but we can't forget, church, that our God is still a holy God. And a holy God is still offended by things that aren't holy. Can I get an amen? I'm going to need some today. Because 1 Samuel chapter 15, though it gives us a glimpse of God's grace, and we'll talk about that, it gives us a clearer picture of a God that is holy, a God that is just, and yes, even a God of judgment. For the next three sermons, this morning, tonight, and Wednesday night, I'm going to preach on this topic, defeating sin. And we're going to go through 1 Samuel chapter 15, a little bit this morning, a little bit tonight, and a little bit on Wednesday night. I think this topic, defeating sin, I think it'll apply to everybody, because as far as I know, statistics say one out of every one is a sinner. And I want you to know, probably the biggest one is the one standing behind the pulpit today. I don't preach down to you today, I don't preach to you because I, I feel like you walk in here with a bunch of baggage and wickedness and sin I'm just the, the delivery boy, the mailman today. It's one sinner preaching to a lot of sinners. I'm the chief of all of that. Can we pray together? Father, help us. As we discuss your word, we preach your word. Give us the ability to balance authority and love. If we're not alert today, I pray you'd help your people. The power of your grace to help them to, to give the alertness to your word that it deserves. Open our hearts. Change our lives. In your most precious name I pray, amen. There's a command that has been used throughout the years in warfare. And it's simply this, take no prisoners. Tammy, would you put that up there? This phrase literally means to be utterly ruthless. Uncompromising or unyielding in the pursuit of one's agenda or goal. When a general sends down a command and he says, take no prisoners, he literally means to leave nobody alive on the battlefield. He wants the enemy utterly destroyed rather than seizing the enemy as prisoners. The general does not want his soldiers weighed down or slowed down or distracted by having to monitor enemy prisoners. In some cases in warfare, the objective is just too serious to waste time on prisoners and it calls for a total annihilation. 
There are times in life when God is our general and we as his soldiers. He'll often command us to take no prisoners. Specifically in this area called sin. Listen church, God is incredibly serious about our sin. And he expects us to be incredibly serious about it as well. He wants us to be utterly ruthless, uncompromising, and unyielding in our pursuit of destroying sin. He would even say to us to not be weighed down, to not be slowed down or distracted by simply seizing our enemy. He would command us to utterly destroy our enemy and to be ruthless in doing it. Take no prisoners. In our text, God comes to King Saul through the prophet Samuel. And he tells him, in essence, Saul, take no prisoners. Let's study together. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Now let me explain that that in this verse, though you might not see it jump off the page, in this verse we're actually given a glimpse of God's grace. Because if you would study the book of 1 Samuel, you'll find that two chapters previous to this, in chapter 13, Saul really messed up. He rejected the command of the Lord, and so God said, I'm going to reject you as king, and I am going to choose another king. Samuel prophesied that to King Saul straight from God. And so you might be asking, if God rejected Saul's king, and if he prophesied that he's going to choose another king, then why is God giving Saul orders and commands and using him in the life of his people still? Well, back in chapter 13, Samuel's prophecy would be referred to in theological terms as a conditional prophecy. Meaning that, that Samuel was basically saying this, that, that Saul would not lose his kingdom if... He truly repented and obeyed the Lord. Listen, church, that's called grace. I bring that out because as we study 1 Samuel 15, you're not going to see much of God's grace jump off the page. You'll see things like God's justice and God's judgment, as I said earlier. So it's important to recognize that God is still a God of grace. He's still a God of love. He's still a God of very much goodness. And that he was going to use Saul even though he really didn't want to. And even though Saul didn't deserve it, look at verse 2, here's the command. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. You, you might... Look at that and say, why is God so adamant about the Amalekites being destroyed? What was it about this group of people specifically that made God so serious about their utter destruction? Infants, children, women. Well, he tells us in verse number two that it was something that they did when the children of Israel first came out of Egypt. In fact, look back at Deuteronomy in chapter 25. It'll be on the screen. It says, remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when you were come forth out of Egypt. This is what he did. How he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee 
when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. Here's what's happening. The nation of Israel was in bondage to the powerful Egyptians. God had mercy on them, chose them before they even chose him. And said, Moses, I want you to deliver my chosen people, the Israelites. I've chosen them as my nation, my people. And so Moses did that, and they were running from Pharaoh. They were running from the Egyptian army. When they got to the Red Sea, and you remember that? God parted the Red Sea. They walked across on dry land. Pharaoh and his army came all the way to the brink of the water, began to walk across like they were going to get a free pass. And then God closed them in with the water, destroyed all of that. And even the Amalekites, upon hearing about that or seeing what God did for his chosen people, the Bible says they feared not God. I don't know about you, but if, if, my, if, if I saw the opposing army and their general made, made waters part, it would strike some fear in my heart. I'm not messing with them. But not the Amalekites. They went to war. With the Israelites, and they didn't wage war just like normal armies would. Army to army, nation to nation, people group to people group, man to man. You know what they did? They, they, they snuck around the backside of the army, and they picked off the feeble. They picked off the sickly. They picked off the children, the women, those that couldn't defend themselves. And that's why God is so stirred up. That's why God is extra offended over the Amalekites. And he says, I want you to destroy them. And notice he said, utterly destroy them. That's different than the way that God ordered his people often to go to war. Often he would order them, I want you to destroy this and that, but I want you to keep this and keep this. But God said, I, I, I want you to go all the way this time. I want you to utterly destroy them. Listen, church, when you look up the meaning of this word utterly, it's not playing games. It's defined by words like exterminate, mutilate, eliminate. eliminate. The theological term is this, placing under a ban. Anytime God would order his people to ban another nation, to utterly destroy them, it's because he was very offended by that people. May I say that God is still very offended by some things today? Can I say that there are still some Amalekites that God wants utterly destroyed? Now, I'm not talking about in, in, in the Muslim sense, like a people group versus a people group. The Amalekites represent totally something totally different to us today as God's people because we too, just like the Israelites were, we are in a battle. It's called a spiritual warfare, and we're fighting against our very own Amalekites. It's called sin. And like the Amalekites, here's what sin does. It seeks to destroy our lives. It, it seeks to keep us from experiencing God's total victory and blessings and freedom. And may I say, it offends God. The very definition of sin is given to us in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law for sin is the transgression of the law there it is sin is when we do anything that transgresses transgresses the very word of god how many agree god's still holy today there are still some things that he takes very seriously in regards to sin so serious listen that just like he commanded king saul he commands us to utterly destroy it to take no prisoners to place a ban 
on those things in our life. Well, where does it say that in the Bible? Look at Colossians 3, verse 5. Mortify, put to death. Therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. It means like a deep down desire to do evil. And then it says covetousness, which is idolatry. Did you say it? Do you see it says mortify there your members? Put to death these things. Look at verse 8 of Colossians 3. He moves from sensual sins to social sins. But now ye also put off all of these. You notice? Utterly destroy all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Here's another list in Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Solomon writes in Proverbs 6, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. I could go on and on because they say the Bible mentions around 667 sins by name. I think they added one so it wouldn't be 666. I haven't studied that for myself to confirm that. But if it's anywhere close, that should tell us God is very serious. And he is not bashful in naming sins. Did you hear that? The Apostle Paul had many more lists than the ones I just mentioned. It seems like in nearly every epistle he gives a list of sins by name. I know in many pulpits around America today, sin is not even mentioned. For sake of offending the congregation, for the sake of running off the tithers. And in many pulpits today, the holiness of God is not lifted up. I believe many preachers, I believe many churches are erecting a God of their own making. And I'm not here to make anybody feel bad. The Holy Spirit will do his job. But I believe we, we, we have a, an authority based on the God's word. We, 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 have, um, uh, we, we have a mandate as preachers of God's word to herald against that which destroys the life of God's people. So often, though, when we hear about our sin, we treat it just like Saul treated his. Look at verse number four. And Saul gathered the people together, Numbered them and to lay them, 200,000 footmen, that's a big army, and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, go depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye show kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. If you're wanting to know what verse 6 is all about, basically it's, it's the truth that God sometimes reigns on the unjust, just like he does the just. Verse 7, And small smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to shore that is over against Egypt. In verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, Saul is amassing this large army. He is developing this strategy to do as God told him to do. Everything is going right until we get to verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep 
and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. Did you see that? Saul destroys everybody and everything except the king, whose name was Agag, and the best of the livestock. The obvious question is this, why did Saul spare Agag? Why did he choose to spare the best of the livestock when God so clearly commanded him to utterly destroy it, to ban it, to take no prisoners? Well, a couple things are implied in verse number 9. Look at the first part of verse number 9. But Saul and the people. See that? It sounds like the people had some influence on Saul. And we're exerting some pressure on Saul. You might say, well, you're just making that up. Well, go to verse number 24 in, in, in 1 Samuel 15. This won't be on the screen. Just look at verse number 24. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So, so, so can you imagine what happened here? Saul is going about getting the strategy, I believe, probably with good intentions to do as God had commanded him to do, and then some people gather around him and say, come on, buddy, um, can't we keep the king? Well, why do you want to keep the king? Well, he'll be like a trophy for us. It'll kind of give us political power and, and leverage. Well, what about what God said? Well, who cares? That, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever what God said. And, and, and hey, what about keeping the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen? Why? We can slaughter all the marginal cattle. Hey, Saul, we can't throw away the prime USDA grade A beef and lamb. And all national beef said, a holy grunt. Saul kept some prisoners because of pressure. Here's another implication of verse 9, because of pleasure. Verse 9 says he kept the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen. What kind of pleasure would that bring him? I'll tell you what kind of pleasure that would bring him. It would bring him egotistical pleasure. I mean, the pride of owning a king that no other army in Israel had ever been successful at owning, to be able to use him as kind of a, a trophy, Keeping the best of the livestock would bring their bellies and their bank accounts some pleasure. It would be profit for them. Are you getting this? Saul took prisoners, because, but, but, but listen, he isn't the only one that does this. We as God's people try our best to live for God and we try our best to do what's right. But we all tend to have some agags in our lives. We all tend to keep the best of the livestock around. It's not like we're, we're trying to reject God and his word altogether. After all, we're at church today. It's just certain sins that we tend to hang on to. It's just some prisoners that we like to keep around and, and we just can't bring ourselves to utterly destroy. If you study your Bible, you'll find that there are two types of sins that we hang on to. There are sins of commission, doing what we shouldn't. And there are sins of omission, not doing what we should. We hang on to sins of commission like sins of the tongue. If Paul names sins, I'm going to go ahead and name sins this morning. Is that okay? Thank you. Gossip. Critical tongue. Complaining tongue. Lying tongue. 
cursing tongue. I know none of those apply to you, but pretend like they might. Some just can't seem to destroy the sin of their tongue. It just keeps reoccurring. I'm thinking of impure habits that turn into addictions, that turn into prisoners in your life that you should destroy, like pain medications and illegal drugs and alcohol and nicotine, and I'll say it, gluttony, food. We're quick to get on drugs, but we'll go to the buffet and have 15 plates. Emotional sins, like anger and self-pity and insecurity and jealousy and envy and greed. Relational sins like bitterness and unforgiveness and holding a grudge and malice. You know what malice is? The intent to do evil against someone that did evil towards us. Sexual sins like lust and fornication and adultery and pornography. The man's drug in America is pornography. Men are shackled to that sin. There are sins of omission. At the heart of the sins of omission, things we should do that we, do, we don't do, listen, at the heart of that is the sin of laziness and slothfulness. Physical laziness, financial laziness, spiritual laziness. Some of us just can't seem to destroy that, that undisciplined lifestyle spiritually where we just fail to read our Bibles every day and we fail to pray every day and we fail to fast on a regular basis. For some, it, it could be the failure to witness. God has told you to witness to that family member and that, co- and that co-worker for weeks, months, and maybe even years, but you keep refusing to do so. It could be a failure to tithe and give your offerings to God. There are men maybe sitting in here today who fail to lead their home spiritually, who fail to love their wives and discipline their children and pray with their children. There could be couples who fail to nurture their marriage in here. Women who don't respect their husbands and husbands who don't sacrificially love their wives. Are we doing okay today? These are sins that, these aren't things we do, these are things we fail to do. And somehow we gloss over those and we hang on to those in our life because we're just not outright a drug addict, but we don't treat our wife with any bit of love. What are the agags in your life? That you're hanging on to and God has clearly commanded you to utterly destroy them. Better yet, why do you hang on to some of those things that are impure? Why do you take these sins as prisoners and lock them up in your life? I think we hang on to these sins, Brother Rick, for the same reason Saul did. For the pleasure. Now think about it. Sins of the tongue. Some find pleasure in running other people down. In a weird kind of way, it makes them feel better about themselves. Some find pleasure in the attention they get when they criticize and belittle somebody else. They like the attention, that filthy communication, as Paul puts it. They like the the laughs they get and the, the pleasure that brings them as they get attention. The bad habits and addictions that many hang on to certainly bring pleasure. And and though it's obviously temporal pleasure, that that drug, that drink, that nicotine, that food, it brings just enough release from reality that it makes it seem like the risk of those things is worth it in the moment. Bitterness and unforgiveness. 
You ask, why would so many Christians hang on to the sin of bitterness? You know why? Because in a weird kind of way, there is pleasure in holding a grudge. There is a sick, evil pleasure in making someone else feel the same way they made us feel. Covetousness. It was in Paul's list, greed and lust. The desire to always want more. Why do some Christians keep buying stuff they can't afford? Everything from houses to cars to boats to motorcycles to golf clubs to purses to clothes to electronics devices to vacations to memberships. You know why? It's because there's pleasure in having new things. There's a pleasure when we feel like we're keeping up with those around us. There's a pleasure when we, when, when we crave those things and we get those things and those things get us extra attention and they get us extra privilege. And it may not just be the pleasure that keeps us from utterly destroying the sin of our lives. It could be the pressure we get from people. It seems like every time we try and get rid of some sin in our life, every time we're trying to overcome something, the devil will send someone our way to tell us things like this. I don't see the big deal. You're overreacting, aren't you? You're actually going to stop doing that after all this time? Oh, just a little bit won't hurt. You deserve it. Hey, stop being so churchy. What, you don't like us anymore? Think you're better than us now? Oh, come on, it's, it's just a girl's night out. Surely it's not that big a deal one time. Hey, man, it's vacation. Loosen up. Hey, listen, what happens at work stays at work. You can trust us. Hey, it's just a weekend getaway. Hey, if you make that decision to stop that in your home, your kids are going to hate you. And here's what's interesting about these people speaking into King Saul's life. They were his people. They weren't the enemy. They weren't the Amalekites. They were the people he was close to, people he was fighting with. They had the same goals. Often, you know what I found? That the devil will not use bad, wicked people necessarily to put pressure on us. He'll use the people we're close to. He'll use the people in our own family, in our own church, in our own, our own work, the people we work side by side with, and the people we trust. And what the devil will get them to do is lighten the severity of your sin. To make it seem like it's not that big of a deal. At least not as big a deal as you're making it out to be. I'm saying the very people that should be challenging our sin, helping us defeat our sin, are often the ones who are guilty of condoning our sin and even pressuring us to stay in our sin. Here's the point. God has commanded us to utterly destroy all our sin. Yet so often we hang on to the Agags. We keep a couple prisoners, we lock those sins up, and in doing so, we fail to fully obey God. Okay, Brother Tyler, stop for a second on your preaching rant here. What's the big deal? You said we're all sinners, right? We all have vices, right? We all have shortcomings, right? We all have just every once in a while where we just kind of go downhill, right? Well, sure, we're all sinners, but here's the problem with sin that we don't deal with in our lives. There's consequences. Consequences we can't control. 
You can control your choice, but you can't control the consequence for your choice. Look at verse number 10, 1 Samuel 15. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, here's the consequence. It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. Skip down to verse number 23 again. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Watch. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. The first consequence is that Solomon lost an opportunity for influence. God gave him another chance. But he messed up. What God did in rejecting King Saul would be almost equal with what we would do if we were to impeach our president. I mean, this is a big deal. Listen, God wasn't messing around anymore. This was no conditional prophecy. In fact, in the next chapter, chapter 16, he anoints Saul's replacement, King David. God means business. It's done. Listen, it's important to understand that God does have a high expectation of holiness and obedience for spiritual leaders. That's clear all throughout Scripture, and often God would displace and replace kings and judges who, who would not obey him. The principle in God's word is this, that the larger amount of influence, the larger the amount of accountability and responsibility. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Hey, that's why at Fellowship Baptist Church, there is a seriousness about the leaders in this church to live holy lives. Not perfect lives, but holy lives. Now, this isn't a prideful stance. It's not an arrogant stance. But not just anybody is going to get behind this pulpit and preach. Not just anybody is going to stand before a class of adults or even children to teach the word unless they are committed to a life of holiness. Not just anybody will serve on the pastoral staff of this church, and not just anybody is going to serve at a de as a deacon of this church. You know why? Because God is serious about preserving holiness in his church. And it starts with the leadership. There are so many churches that are sweeping the sins of their leaders completely under the rug. I'm thankful that at Fellowship Baptist Church, we have standards. I'm thankful that there are expectations for those that will have spiritual influence in the lives of boys and girls and adults that come into our church. Listen, that means when, 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 when a spiritual leader has fallen into sin, the church should take it seriously. With grace, yes. With mercy, yes. But we should not sweep things under the rug when it comes to sin. For someone to be able to influence, listen, others by way of spiritual leadership, yet not have to give an answer for their willful falling into sin is nothing short of unbiblical. It hurts the sinner more than it helps the sinner. And here's what it does within the church. It breeds an unhealthy tolerance of sin and unholiness in the body of Christ. You read the book of Corinthians. You read the New Testament. Paul told the church of Corinth this principle. A little leaven. Leaven is the whole lump. Leaven is a, is a symbol for sin. And he said if you don't deal with sin in the church, it will eventually dominate the church. And here's what happens. The church will then lose its influence. 
I don't want Fellowship Baptist Church to lose its influence in our community because we become known for tolerating sin. I want Fellowship Baptist Church to be known, yes, for liberal love. Yes, for for reaching people that others won't reach. Yes, for opening our doors to anybody, anytime, anywhere, so long as it's safe. I want, us to, I want us to be known as a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints. But if there's ever a point where we do that, to the, to, to, to the degree of accepting sin and unholiness, listen to me, we will lose our influence. The Bible calls us to be salt and light. What's the power of salt and what's the power of light? It's that they're different. Light is so different from dark, that's why it stands out. Salt is so different from just being bland, that's why it's so tasty. Hear me. We are to be salt and light, church. We lose our, our preservation of holiness and we lose our influence. And it's not just corporate, it's also individual. If you live an unholy life and then you try to invite someone into the love of Jesus, good luck with that. Amen. Parents, you live one way on the weekends, but one way during the week with your kids, they sniff out hypocrisy. As you yell at them and then tell them to stop yelling at you, good luck with that. No, I'm just telling you, unholy lives lead to a loss of influence. There's another consequence. Look at the last part of verse 11. And it grieved Samuel... And he cried unto the Lord all night. Here's the second consequence. It it grieves those you love. I'll show you. Teenagers, you listen. Look at me. Listen. Look at the screen at this verse. A foolish son is a grief to his father. And bitterness to her that bear him. Listen. Your parents don't expect you to be perfect. They don't. Neither does God. But hear me. When you continually mess up and it becomes a pattern of your life, you don't just disappoint your parents or let down your parents. You grieve your father. You place a heavy bitterness on your mother who at times will cry herself to sleep as she cannot get a hold of you and convince you to make good decisions. She loves you. Your father loves you. They pour out your life, their life before you. They provide for you. And then they get a pattern of disobedience that they just can't seem to control. And you think they go to sleep without even thinking about it? It grieves their heart. It's heavy on their spirit. But let me flip it because mom and dad, when we live in sin, we hurt our children. And according to Exodus 20 verse 5, even our potential grandchildren. No, look at it. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Talking about false idols. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Mom and dad, when you refuse to get rid of the agags in your life, here's what we're doing according to scripture. We're setting up our children to be grieved by the same exact sins in their future. The Bible calls us sheep. Calls our pastor a shepherd. 
doesn't mean that he's had to have an unhealthy amount of, 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 of lordship over our lives. It simply means that he's to love us and lead us and guide us and feed us. But understand, when one of his flock strays and, and goes into willful sin, do you understand? That hurts the heart of our shepherd. It grieves the heart of our pastor. I've seen him as a boy cry and weep over young people over college students, over marriages that lived in willful sin. Those that ignored the preaching of the word, refused to live a holy life, refused to utterly destroy the King Agags in their life. I've seen that grieve the heart of my father. I'm just trying to tell you that when you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. And you make those around you suffer. So, if Saul shows us what not to do, I guess it makes sense to close with how Samuel showed us what to do. Look at verse 32. Then said Samuel, bring ye hither to me Agag the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately, I would have too. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. We'll talk about that in the third sermon on Wednesday. Amazing truth in these four verses. And Samuel said, as thy sword hath made woman, woman childless, women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. You might be thinking, that's violent. How in the world can that be right? Listen, God was so offended by the Amalekites. You study the time between Exodus, when he promised that they would be driven off the face of the earth, and 1 Samuel, there was a lot of space and grace for these people. Don't go out here saying God's mean. No, he's just. And he was so offended that it came to the point where there were no more conditional prophecies. It was time to utterly destroy them, listen, before they destroyed his people. If you don't deal with your sin, listen, it will deal with you. Samuel wasn't messing around. He wasn't playing games. He wasn't trying to keep what brought him personal pleasure. His dealing with King Agad wasn't determined by the pressure he was getting from the people around him. He understood when God said all, he meant all. And through Samuel's example, we learn the overarching truth of this passage. To fully obey God. You must utterly destroy your sin. Utterly destroying your sin is not a passive activity. Hear me, I know that the message hasn't felt good, and if it hadn't felt good to hear, it's ten times that bad to speak. And though I speak with authority, I speak trembling today. Please understand. You know why? Because I know my sin. And I know my Agags. And I know the best of the livestock that I keep around in my life. But here's what we learn. We must take out our swords and hew our sins to pieces. How do we do that? Well, it starts by humbly confessing your sin to God. And aren't you thankful 
that if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the God of grace. But it doesn't stop with a visit to the altar. No, you get out your sword when you go home and you do what Matthew 5 teaches us to do, radical amputation. You hew to pieces every single sin by, by, by eliminating yourself of temptation. Oh, there's so many practical ways that we'll get into later on in the series. But you don't just pray about your sin and call it good. You've got to get out your sword and start hewing it to pieces. Take no prisoners. Would you stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed?